When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you all the top news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, podcast editor. Welcome to the show. This week, we're also joined by New Scientist reporter Graham Lawton. Hello, Graham. Hello. Good to be back. Coming up on the show today, we've got an absolutely mind-bending look at the nature of time and how the very measurement of time is increasing the amount of disorder in the universe. Yeah, and we've also got an interview with uh, neuroscientist and author David Eagleman on how our brains change during our lives. Uh, We've got news of the biggest emergence of insects on the planet. And in climate news, we're looking at how to stay at 1.5 degrees of warming. But before all of that, a word from our sponsor, Ryman Prize. Entries for the 2021 Ryman Prize are now open. The Ryman Prize is a £130,000 cash prize for the best discovery, development, advance or achievement that enhances quality of life for older people. It's a New Zealand prize, but it's open to anyone in the world who wants to enter. For details of how to enter, go to rhymanprize.com. And just to remind you too of a subscription offer, you can get your first 12-week subscription to New Scientist for half price, plus get a free New Scientist moon jigsaw worth $21.99. Go to newscientist.com puzzle to subscribe and get your free jigsaw. Now, we're starting this week with news about vaccination against coronavirus. It seems amazing that this time last year, we didn't even know whether a vaccine, would it be possible to produce a vaccine in the timescales we were talking about? And now we're already contemplating whether we're going to have booster shots. So Graham, what's going on? Yeah, so boosters are now under active discussion in some places where the vaccination programs are going well. So that's the UK, the US. Neither has made a decision yet, although the UK has bought some extra vaccine just in case. And Israel's already moved on it. You know, they will be launching a booster campaign in October. 
And Israel has already vaccinated proportionately more of its population than any other country. I think it's at 56% already fully vaccinated compared to about 35% in the US and 27% in the UK. So what exactly do we mean by a booster? Well, in the first instance, it would just be a third dose of the vaccine, but then going forwards, kind of regular, maybe annual shots, a bit like we have for the flu. So in the case of the flu, the boosters are designed to protect against whatever variant is doing the rounds that particular year. Would that be how COVID-19 boosters work too? Yeah, that's one reason why we might need them. Obviously, there are already many variants out there and presumably many more to come. So it's possible that the vaccines will need updating to deal with them. I mean, right now, most of the existing vaccines look to be a match for most of the variants, but we can't be sure of that forever. And some of the vaccine developers are already tweaking their vaccines to take into account the variants. And some countries, uh, including Israel, of course, have already taken out options to buy those tweaked vaccines. Uh, But even if variants are not a problem, there's another reason why we might need boosters, and that's fading immunity. You know, we still don't know how long vaccine-induced antibodies last, and the answer may be not that long, you know, in which case boosters may be the answer. Why is it that they only may be the answer? Because in a nutshell, the immune system is complex. You know, we can't be sure that boosters will actually boost the immune system in the right way without testing it first in clinical trials. And lots of those trials are ongoing. Uh, There are no results yet, but, you know, we will keep you posted. But actually, that takes us back to boosters against variants. Now, one of the complexities of the immune system is this rather esoteric sounding phenomenon called original antigenic sin. Now, that has nothing to do with Adam and Eve, but it's actually referring to a rather frustrating outcome where the updated vaccine merely reactivates the original immune memory rather than creating a new one. And that doesn't necessarily protect against the new variant. You know, that's been seen with other viral infections, including the flu. You know, it's one reason why annual flu shots are not always that effective because they merely create original antigenic sin. Again, this is a theoretical possibility with SARS-CoV-2, but, you know, we need to test it. Now, one way around all of this is another immunological mouthful, forgive me for this, called heterologous prime boost vaccination, which is a kind of fancy name for mixing and matching the jab, say, giving the Pfizer as the first dose and AstraZeneca as the second dose. Oh, yeah, I signed up for a trial to test that, to mix Uh, and match them. Uh, In Oxford... Yeah, although I wasn't selected or haven't yet been selected. Right. So no antigenic sin for you. You're a sinner. No, I'm up for it, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, look, there's some evidence that heterologous prime boost creates a more powerful immune response than using the same vaccine for both shots. So Russia's Sputnik V, for example, is designed as a heterologous prime boost vaccine. And the latest real world figures from Russia show that it's 97.6% effective, which would make it the most effective COVID-19 vaccine in the world. And it may be that boosters will also work best if they're heterologous. But, you know, surprise, surprise, we don't know yet. But experiments are underway. It's kind of hard to get your head around that we're talking already about third shots and booster shots for some wealthy countries when most of the world is still waiting for their first shots. Yeah, it is a bit distasteful, actually. And vaccine nationalism is clearly a problem in the world. You know, every third shot that, say, Israel or the UK buys is a first shot that's no longer available to somebody who's not been vaccinated at all. And as World Health Organization has said repeatedly, nobody's safe from a pandemic until everybody is safe. So, you know, ironically, a booster campaign may ultimately backfire. But, you know, come on, let's face it. Very few people are going to turn down a booster shot in the autumn if their government has secured the doses. Now it's time for Lifeform of the Week, where we take a look at some organism that's in the news. 
Rowan, what is it this week? And what is that noise? Uh, cicadas or cicadas uh, <laughs> is the chirping that you can hear. Uh, and that's made by the insect inflating a sound box in its abdomen. Uh, and there's this special protein, elastic protein, that forms ribs inside the abdomen. And they sort of buckle and unbuckle. Um, and that makes it the loudest insect in the world. Some species can get to 130 decibels. Uh, and normal human speech is about 60 decibels. So you can get an idea of the of the shriek that they can make. And this is a particularly special year for them, isn't it? It is. It's year 17 of the 17-year cycle of the periodical cicada. And that's when an entire brood of baby cicadas or larval yeah. cicadas emerge from underground. Yeah. Um, so it's a, this is brood X. Uh, the X stands for the Roman numeral X, so it's brood 10. Uh, brood X, uh, and that's just starting to emerge in 15 eastern states in the US, uh, from New Jersey to Illinois. And it's absolutely incredible. Uh, they come out in gigantic numbers, up to 1.5 million insects per acre. And in total, there's going to be trillions of individual insects. Trillions of them. Uh, which is either <laughs> delightful or very uh, creepy, depending on how much you love insects. Uh, it's pretty. It's, it's going to be an awesome sight uh, anyway, whichever way round you, you come on it. And they are amazing. And then it's not like a plague, you know, it's the, they don't do anything harmful. They don't bite you or uh, they don't devour crops. Uh, they're hemipterans, uh, which are their true bugs. And they have piercing mouth parts and they use that to suck the juices out of tree stems, out of the xylem of the plant. Hang on one second. What makes a bug a true bug? What you call a bug, you say bug to mean all insects, but in entomology, a true bug is a hemipteran, just like a beetle is a, a coleopteran or a, a butterfly is a, a lepidopteran. So it's a, a true bug is, a, is an order of insects huh. uh, called hemipterans. Okay. So do we get cicadas here in the UK? Uh, I've never seen one. Uh, there is one species in the new forest, but it's very rare. Um, and yeah, we're more likely to encounter them on holiday. There's loads of different species. There's loads of different species. When I was in Japan, when I lived in Japan, you could tell the time of year by the noise of the different cicada that had come out. Yeah, that uh, that cicada noise is the noise of Mediterranean holidays. You know, you, yeah, kind of, you really. know you're on holiday when you can hear cicadas. And like, God, yeah. I've missed that. Yeah, seriously. Aww. So what is it about this brood X? You know, why are they getting, why are there going to be sort of trillions of them this year? Is is that always the case every 17 years? Yeah. So the periodical cicadas stay underground as larvae for 17 years, then all emerge at once. So that's an evolutionary adaptation to flood the market with so much food that no predator is able to take advantage of that. And what's even more cunning uh, cool about it is that this 17 year cycle it's a prime number so no no predator can latch on to that cycle and then emerge at the same time as the insect and you also get periodical cicadas that have a 13 year cycle so another prime number so basically those predators are just bad at math and the uh, cicadas <laughs> exploit that good stuff yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so if you're listening to this and you're uh, in the US and you've got cicadas emerging near you, please send in your photos and audio clips to at New Scientist Pod. We'd love to see them, or I would at least. Um, and one more thing, though, they're actually emerging earlier in the year because um, they, the trigger for them to emerge is when it gets to 64, when the ground reaches 64 Fahrenheit or 18 Celsius in the spring. 
But that, because of climate change, that's getting earlier and earlier each year. And the last time this this brood emerged in 2004, carbon dioxide was at 381 parts per million in the atmosphere, and now it's 420. So it's it's kind of I think it's kind of spooky to feel like what's it going to be at next time this brood comes out in 2038. word from our sponsor tiny forest we're here today planting london's first tiny forest in hammersmith park we're here in partnership with hammersmith and fulham council and earthwatch europe so tiny forest we're bringing a little slice of a native woodland back into an urban space uh, in hammersmith and creating a haven for wildlife and also a place for the community to really come and enjoy nature, reconnect with the environment and yeah, hopefully inspire them to take care of the, the natural world. After today, Fever Tree are going to be part of the Keeper team that's been set up by Earthwatch. So we'll have a group of volunteers who'll be coming along at intervals over the next couple of months to check on the trees because we're putting them in the ground today, but we want to make sure that they've got the best chance of survival. We're really excited to be working with Fever Tree and we've got a lot of shared ambitions here. So so Fever Trees focus on sustainability plan around biodiversity and connecting people to nature is really aligned with the work that we do at Earthwatch. If you are looking for opportunities to make a difference to nature and people, start at earthwatch.org.uk forward slash new scientist. Next up, we have news this week of an increase in entropy in the universe, basically an increase in disorder. How worried should we be about that? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't. Yeah, we don't need to be worried. Um, but it is a this is a really intense story, and I asked our space reporter Leah Crane to talk through it for us. Uh, the basic setup is that you have you get this concept of entropy from the second law of thermodynamics, which says that the amount of randomness or disorder in a system always increases and is irreversible. And the, there's classic examples of that of stirring milk into coffee or smashing an egg. And you go from an ordered state of just black coffee or an intact egg to a, like a random mixed up state of, of coffee and milk or a smashed egg. And you can't go the other way. You can't unmix the coffee or unsmash the egg. From that, you get the idea of the arrow of time. And that's the tendency of entropy to increase. And that's that's what gives time a direction. But now it turns out that just by measuring time, you're increasing the amount of disorder in the universe and the accuracy of the clock influences the amount of entropy or disorder. <laughs> but look, here's Leia to take up the story. It turns out that the more accurate you want your clock to be, the more entropy it has to create. So if you want a more accurate clock, you are pouring more disorder into the universe. <laughs> and it's a requirement and before we have a, the Swiss clockmakers suing us for all time, that, that you know, it's not about mechanical clockmaking in Switzerland, is it? Or is it? Has that been like increasing disorder in the universe? Yeah, not necessarily. So this experiment was on um, a sort of very small vibrating membrane that they used as a clock, but they think it might apply to all clocks from an atomic clock, which is just a single atom vibrating all the way up to, to a big grandfather clock. But the, the scale of the accuracy we're talking about here isn't really the sort of Swiss watch scale. It's really microsecond scale of accuracy. 
Uh, okay, so but let's spell it out again. So if you increase the accuracy of measurement at that at a very fine scale, it increases the amount of disorder in the universe. Yeah, it makes sense if you think about it, because what it's doing when it increases the disorder is it's taking in sort of ordered energy, the energy you're using to power the clock, and it's putting out heat, which is disordered. So it sort of makes sense that that if you want a more accurate clock, you have to pour more energy into it, and it's going to mess up the order of that energy. But we don't really need to worry about increasing the entropy of the universe. The scale of the entropy that we as humans create in general, let alone just with timekeeping, is so small that it's not something we really need to worry about in the grand scheme of things. But, but what we're interested in here is that fundamentally... It does do that, but if you by measuring time, you are increasing entropy. And does that tell us anything about the nature of time itself? So it might. One of the really interesting things about physical laws, and in particular quantum laws, is that most of them are reversible, which means they look the same forward and backward, and there's no reason to think that the flow of time matters for any of them. But... As far as we know, time only flows forward. And as far as we know, the total amount of entropy in the universe must constantly increase, creating disorder that cannot be put in order again. So the fact that these two things are connected has always been sort of intriguing for physicists. And does it mean that, you know, what we call time you know, is time a construct? Is time itself an actual thing? Or is it really something about entropy that we've labelled because we're organic beings that that sort of live with an arrow of time? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. And it's not really settled yet. Um, So there are theories that time is an increase in entropy, that what we call the arrow of time is in fact just the arrow of entropy and that those two things are the same and time itself is its own separate thing because that's the only thing basically that we can think of where time could come from. There's no real reason that time should exist and move only forward. But even though those two things do seem to be connected, there's not really evidence enough to say time is entropy. Now, in this experiment, as you said, they used a clock with a membrane of silicon, a silicon nitride. But tell me again, so do they find this relationship between accuracy of measurement and entropy with all kinds of clocks? Is that another way of getting at the the fundamental relationship of entropy to time or to time measurement? This experiment doesn't necessarily directly translate to all different kinds of clocks, because as you said, they only tested this one kind with the silicon nitride membrane. So testing more kinds to see if they all have the same relationship between accuracy and entropy is something that future work will have to do. But what they did do is compare their results with theoretical models that were developed for clocks that rely on quantum effects, quantum clocks. And it seemed like the relationship between accuracy and entropy were the same For this clock, which is decidedly not quantum, and for quantum clocks, which is kind of surprising. It's a little bit surprising anytime something is the same for something in the quantum world and something in the (laughs) classical world. Um, Because the quantum world is 
outrageous and strange, but it does perhaps uh, sort of hint that the laws of thermodynamics, which govern energy and entropy, might apply similarly to a quantum clock and this sort of nanoscale clock and maybe even much bigger clocks. You know, now we've mentioned quantum clocks, I think you better tell us what a quantum clock is. Is that a theoretical thing or is it a real, has someone made one? It's a real thing. It's um, like atomic clocks. Any clock that is so small that its movements and our measurements of its movements are governed by quantum mechanics and quantum uncertainty. Right. So an atomic clock that sort of measures the atomic decay of, of the nucleus of the atom and uh, and that's how it measures its its measurement of time rather than a sort of a, a bit of clockwork wound up in a mechanical watch. <laughs> yeah, I should I guess I should say that <laughs> when I'm talking about measuring time here with this experiment, it's not like measuring the distance between two seconds. It's really <laughs> measuring the vibrations and how even they are. Because when you're measuring time, you just want to measure how long it takes between a series of events. And you want that to be as uniform as possible. And that's what we call accuracy. Rowan? Rowan? Hello? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I had to... um, My head exploded after that. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes to explain uh, more about it. Now it's time for our climate hope or doom segment. This is the part of the show where we look at climate news and decide if we're feeling the glass is half full or half empty. Yeah, so we've just had Germany pledging to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2045, which is the shortest timeline of all the major economies. And they're doing that. They made that pledge ahead of COP26, the next big climate summit that's in November. So maybe that will inspire other countries to set more ambitious goals. Yes, uh, hopefully. Um, and obviously, there's, you know, there's lots to do, as we often talk about. There's not just decarbonizing the electricity sector, but all the industrial stuff too, like cement and steel production. But the thing is that all the scenarios of getting us to 1.5 degrees or to keeping us at 1.5 degrees of warming, all of these use negative emissions technology and they assume growth of GDP um, or what people call green growth or sustainable growth. And the obvious problem with that is, you know, nice idea, but we actually haven't got technology to, you know, make the negative emissions part of it work yet. We can't just pull carbon out of the air cheaply enough or at scale. And that sustainable growth isn't a thing that works yet either. People often point at trees and say, look, they do it for us. But the truth is that those nature based solutions are just not sufficient to get enough carbon out of the atmosphere. Right. And all those things are the problem. Um, and there's a paper out this week suggesting that basically the IPCC should start to look at degrowth as a as a thing, as a way out of this. So what what do they mean by degrowth? So that means like a deliberate decline in economic output. And, and that idea is so shocking. It's shocking to many of us. It's so ingrained in our lives. You know, the idea of a of a growing economy and growing consumption. But, you know, we have enough material possessions, don't we? No, I mean... Yeah, obviously, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> well, we do after I've bought my new car and a bigger house and, you know, new bike, a new summer wardrobe. And, <laughs> and then draw the line just after that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this paper looks at pathways to the 1.5 degrees target 
using um, IPC scenarios. And then it looks at pathways that allow degrowth. So look at a, a drop in consumption. And it finds that degrowth scenarios have the potential to get us to 1.5 more easily and, and less riskily than the sort of regular IPCC way. It's weird, isn't it? Like, it's not controversial to say that we are we're over consuming. You know, we've we've run lots of uh, pieces in the magazine about exactly that and and how we're using up too much of the planet's resources and have been doing so for for years, decades. But to kind of put it this way around and say, okay, now we have to stop consuming so much that we have to deliberately slow growth. It it somehow feels different and controversial. <laughs> yeah. So this is a paper in Nature Communications, and the authors have a classic bit of understatement. Substantial challenges remain regarding political feasibility to get governments, uh, you know, to slow or degrow their economies. (laughs) Yeah, substantial challenges indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think it's still uh, a a reason for climate hope because, you know, we're identifying a solution and and chipping away at it, even though we've got these uh, substantial challenges. So I'm going to go with Climate Hope again this week. Next up, we've got an interview with the neuroscientist David Eagleman. Our reporter Claire Wilson spoke with him about how our brains reconfigure themselves as we learn and what this means for who we are, for ourselves, if our brains change. We've got a clip from that interview here. And she started by asking him to define what we mean by brain plasticity. It's that the brain is constantly reconfiguring its own circuitry. So the term plasticity was coined 100 years ago to capture the way that plastic, the material that we make toys out of, um, you you can mold it into shape and it will hold that shape. And that's what the brain does in the sense that, you know, when you learn that my name is David Eagleman, there's a physical change in the structure of your brain. And that's what it means for you to remember my name uh, a month later. But I, I've gotten very interested in using the term live wired instead. This is a term that I coined to represent that you have billions of neurons constantly reconfiguring their circuitry every second of your life. And the connections between them are changing their strength and unplugging and seeking and replugging and elsewhere. And so uh, I felt that the term plasticity, even though it is the argot of the field, it doesn't capture enough the way that the whole system is actually moving. Can you give us an example of neuroplasticity, maybe some everyday examples? In a sense, you're seeing examples of neuroplasticity every time you um, jump on a bicycle or a skateboard or a surfboard or a pogo stick. Your brain is having to, to learn how do I operate under a new body plan? In other words, instead of being born with two legs, uh, you know, what if I were born with wheels? And it just figures out how to operate its body to make that work. So there are a million ways in which we're plastic like this. And of course, every time you pick up a new piece of software on your computer and you have to learn something new, you're learning it because of plastic changes in your brain. And in fact, when, when you learn a new musical instrument or a new skill like juggling, we can actually see changes in the physical structure of your brain with the naked eye in brain imaging. So the, the changes are, are so large that happen in the brain when you're doing something brand new that you can, you can see those. You, know, you can tell the difference between, for example, a violinist and a pianist just by looking at their brain at autopsy. 
because the violinist is only using one hand in great detail, whereas the pianist uses both hands with great detail. And that changes what their brain looks like uh, on the two sides. How does plasticity shape you, yourself, the person you are? What makes you you is every conversation, every experience, every friend you have, everything you see, your language, your culture, all of these are what form you into the person that you are. And of course, even when we look at uh, identical twins who have essentially the same genome, you know, they can come out quite differently, especially if they're raised in different uh, homes. And it's funny because one of the people have always loved these stories of identical twins that have something in common and people tend to emphasize these these things that they have in common, even if they were raised separately. But I actually look at the other side of that, which is the things they don't have in common because of the differences in their experiences. Uh, it's just, it's such an enormous part of what shapes you. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And do check out the full interview in the magazine this week and online. We'll put a link in the show notes. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Graham Lawton, Leah Crane, Claire Wilson and David Eagleman. And thanks to you for listening to our award-winning show. Did I mention that it was award-winning? <laughs> yeah, I might have done. Yes, thanks everyone. And remember to get that free moon jigsaw puzzle with your subscription offer at newscientist.com slash puzzle. See you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic tees, soft structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim. All made right here in the USA with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code GRATEFULAG23.